a couple other announcements. Uh, I don't know if you know this. It's really crazy. Right now we're broadcasting live. It's so amazing. So hi everyone that's watching and welcome to our live broadcast. Over the next couple days and weeks, over a thousand people end up watching the service. Either live or on YouTube or on Facebook at our playback time later. And what's so incredible about that is obviously our pastors are up here right now. We have our awesome tech team. They're busy. But we need people who could engage online with people. And you don't have to be tech savvy. You don't have to run anything really. All you have to do is just be available to connect with people, to respond to people. Or if you do want to run a camera, we have opportunities for you to do that as well. But it's such a great, incredible opportunity to reach people. I have had so many people over the last year, it's been remarkable, say, hey, uh, I'm new to the chapel. So how did you check us out? Well, we've been watching online. Or we'll get emails from people who say, hey, we've been tuning in, and, and I just thought that's really great. So if you want to be a part of that ministry, uh, text the word online to that phone number, and you'll get a response back. And we just are asking you just to chip in because we need your help. So be a part of that if you don't mind. And finally, uh, hopefully when you walked in, uh, you received our annual report. This is my favorite document, my favorite uh, piece of literature that comes out of the chapel every year. And one of the reasons I love it is just the stories. Uh, I get to be in it every single day. And then when you look back, you're like, oh, I forgot that launch this year. I forgot we did that. Or I forgot they started coming. Or I forgot about these incredible stories. So really, I don't really even just call this the annual report. I call it God's faithfulness in one document at the chapel. And so peruse this, look through it. And one of the things that you're going to see is what $100 goes to at the chapel. We want to be transparent with our finances. We have nothing to hide. And I know a lot of people, uh, when they come to church, they feel like, hey, you know, I'm giving my money. Uh, I want to make sure it goes to places that I really want it to go, and it's making an impact. So you can see in those two, four, seven areas where all of the finances, percentage-wise, goes to the chapel, both inside and outside the walls. And then on the opposite page, you can see those who have partnered with us uh, trying to pay off the debt of our church, which is our mortgage. We're getting closer and closer to do that. That's going to be an incredible time where we can finally use some of that money and not pay the bank, but we can use that to really do even more ministry. So all of those things are in here as well. And one of the reasons we do this report is just like any nonprofit or church at the end of the year, uh, we make up a lot of our budget at the end of the year by people like you just giving an extra gift to the chapel. Uh, I never, I shouldn't say never, hardly ever do we talk about finances at the chapel. And we made that really clear 35 years ago when we started our church, we weren't going to pass a plate. And the reason is, is because I know a lot of people who couldn't give or they couldn't give as much as the person next to them and then they felt guilty or judged or God's disappointed with them and we just don't do that. But at the same time, we are not supported by any other denomination, any other church. It's just the chapel. And so when you give, uh, it impacts this church and our churches and our other communities and beyond as well. So if God lays it on your heart to give an extra gift, there's an envelope in there. We really do appreciate you doing that. All right? So let's jump into our second week in our message series that we're calling Unwrapping Christmas. And the reason we're calling it Unwrapping Christmas is because sometimes we don't always find the true meaning of Christmas, or we settle. We don't unwrap it all the way and ask, why do we do what we do, and why do we celebrate Christmas in the way that we do? And so last week, Pastor Todd was here. He kicked it off with, why gifts? Why do we get gifts? Because Jesus has given us the ultimate gift of himself. 
Next week, we're going to say, why do we sing a lot during this time? Why does that mean something? And why are we generous during this time? A lot of us want to give to different things because that's part of the Christmas season. But why? Why do we do that? Well, today we're going to start with, an, or we're going to talk about an interesting topic, family. Now, for some of us in this room, it's a fun topic to talk about because you love your family. Others of you are here saying, God, why did you give me this family? <laughs> no matter what kind of family we have, if it's the healthiest family or the greatest family or the best family or you just love your family, there's always some kind of dysfunction, some kind of tension, especially during these times when we're gathering with family more than ever. Some people you could avoid all year. You can't avoid them around Christmas time. I heard a quote one time. It's not original, but I love it. Family is like fudge. Most of it's sweet, but you have a lot of nuts put into it as well. And maybe you're one of those nuts. I know I'm one of those nuts as well. But family is such an important part of Christmas, and we gather, but, but why? Why is it so important? How did we get to this point in our Christmas celebration where family is so important to our celebration? Well, I'm going to answer that in a moment. Last night, my wife and I, we watched with our kids for the very first time The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. One of my favorite movies. I loved that they got to watch it. They got bored halfway through. I was very disappointed. But it was still one of those things. And as you're watching this movie and other Christmas movies, you notice something. That most of them, they have messed up families somewhere along the line. Some of them are oddballs. Some of them had weird behaviors. Some of them don't belong. And then I started thinking about other Christmas movies and how it represents family. And I just thought I would walk through this with you. And as you're looking at some of these characters, think about your own family as well. For instance, Uncle Eddie, he doesn't know boundaries, terrible manners. There are some people in your family, you're like, I have a cousin Eddie. <laughs> I can tell you who that is. Or Elf, right? There's someone in your family that they live for Christmas. I mean, sometimes a lot, I start listening to Christmas music about November 1st. Some of, I know people that listen to it all year. I'm like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> And they put up their lights in like July. It's just one of those things where they just look forward to Christmas. It's one of the best times of the year. Now, of course, along with Elf, we know that he didn't really belong. And there's some people in your family, you're just like, which one doesn't belong? It would be that person right there, right? There's some of us that have those family members in our family. And then you have someone like this where, you know, in Christmas story, he needed some soap because he couldn't keep his mouth shut, bad language. There's some of you that you're like, hello, there's kids in the room. You can't talk that way. Or maybe there's somebody that has uh, some emotions that are very expressive and they like to tell everybody about certain things, just like Home Alone was. Or you just have a Scrooge, but they're just in a bad mood all the time. Like, you can get them the gift that they really want, and they're just like, I don't care. Like, they ruin Christmas, you know? And then you have someone that has just this bad attitude, Grinch, who wants to take away from the holiday season, kind of puts a damper on things. Or maybe like Lucy, where it's a know-it-all. Do you have a know-it-all in your family? Maybe you're that know-it-all. But there are so many people in our family I see in these Christmas movies that represent who's going to be around the Christmas tree in the next couple of weeks. God gave them to you. I don't know why. You should take that up with God. I don't know why. But I'm wondering, this Christmas season, if it's possible that you and I look at our family gatherings differently than we ever have before. And I really believe if we hear what God has to say to us today, it can be that way. But in order to understand why Christmas and why family, 
And what does this have to do with Jesus? I want to go back to the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, it's talking about the coming of Jesus. And there's many passages that when you read it, you can say, okay, wow, if you are an Israelite, which were God's chosen people at the time, you can see, man, they are promising a Messiah, someone to save them. And they read these verses in the Old Testament that would say, yes, that is predicting this Messiah to come. And I want to look at one of those passages of Scripture with you today. So open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. We're only going to be there a short time, and we're going to jump into Matthew in a little bit. But I want to look at this passage of Scripture with you to explain even Jesus' family. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 5 and verse 10 says this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. I'm going to explain what that means in a moment. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord, he will rest on him. And the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, spirit of counsel and of might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lip, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. In that day, the root of Jesse, there it is again, will stand as a banner for all people. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Now to understand this complicated passage, I just have to explain one thing to you. Isaiah was talking about the nation of Israel. And at that time, Israel was split in two kingdoms, the north and the south. Now the north, they've already been conquered by the Assyrians. And Isaiah prophetically knew that the south, which was the kingdom of Judah, he knew that was in trouble as well. And so if you were to liken Israel to a tree, that tree was cut down at the stump, and only the stump remained. And so when you read this passage you may think, man, where is the hope? If Israel's been cut down and only a stump is left, what happens from there? Well, let me go back again to the first verse. And of course, verse 10 says the same thing. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Now, who is Jesse? Now, I'm not going to lie. The first time I really heard the name Jesse in the Bible, I immediately think of Uncle Jesse from Full House. It's not Uncle Jesse. It's actually King David's dad. King David's dad was Jesse. And several hundred years before Isaiah, he was alive. And it was through Jesse, which of course came through David, he made, God made a covenant promise with David to say, look, through you, through your people, through your lineage, the Messiah is going to come. Or a shoot will come up from the stump of your ancestor, the stump of Jesse. Though you look at the tree now and it says, well, there's no tree anymore. It's just a stump. Well, a shoot will come up and it's going to bear fruit and it's going to grow and grow and grow. And that shoot is going to be the eternal king, the savior of the world, the Messiah. Now, how do we know for sure that's Jesus? Well, if you fast forward all the way to Revelation, which we spent a lot of time this summer looking at, if you go to a Revelation chapter 22, and Jesus is talking about himself. Look what he says. He says, I, Jesus, 
and the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. Again, he likens that image of this family tree, this lineage all the way to Jesus, this shoot that would come up out of Jesse and then all of a sudden produce this incredible, lively tree that would produce much fruit. And that tree, of course, is Jesus. Now, when we're talking about the family history of Jesus, if you want to know who is in his descendants, many of us in this room, we've looked back at our own family tree to figure out who we are. If you want to figure out who Jesus was and his descendants, all you have to do is go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, or 1 through 16. I want you to go there right now with me if you have your Bibles. Now, there are 42 generations represented in this passage. And if I were to read these names to you, though it's interesting, it would probably put you to sleep. So I'm not going to do that. But I do want you to look at it sometime because when you see the genealogy of Jesus, you start to recognize some names. And I'll explain a few of those names in a moment. But if I had to sum up Matthew 1, 1 through 16 in two words, it would be Abraham, yada, 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 Seinfeld fans, Jesus. It goes from Abraham to Jesus. Now, if you're a skeptic in the room and you don't believe the Bible, or you have questions about the validity of Scripture, or you have questions about, is Jesus real? Matthew 1, 1 through 16 will mess with you. It has to mess with you. Because when you read Matthew 1, 1 through 16, not only are they the first words of the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, but it describes Jesus' relatives. And if you were to prop up a false narrative that Jesus is real, and you want to put evidence that he is so, you would never, ever, ever put the names in Matthew that we're going to see today. You would make up the greatest kind of names ever because Jesus is God. And so when you put the names of Jesus' lineage, you're going to want things to represent that if you're making up a story. But if it's real, you just let the cards fall where they are. You tell the truth. And in Matthew 1, 1 through 16, we see names of people. You're just like, what in the world? How is this part of Jesus' lineage? And what's so great about it is, not only do we know that Jesus is God, we see that Jesus is like us. Why? Because he has crazy family members. <laughs> he has family members like Cousin Eddie's, and he has family members like Grinches and Scrooges, just like you and I do. And yet somehow they belong. Let's start with just a few names. It's not in sequential order of Matthew, but I just want to point out a few of them to you. For instance, Abraham. Abraham came from a family of idol worshipers, which meant they worshipped all other gods but Yahweh, Israel's God. And yet, even though they worshipped another god, God wanted him. And so he chose God, and somehow Abraham believed God. Can you imagine? You're worshipping all these other gods, and then Yahweh comes to you and says, hey, I want you to believe in me, and Abraham did, and because he believed in him, he was the beginning of that lineage all the way to Jesus. Or Jacob. Jacob was known for a lifetime of deception. He was a liar. And yet somehow he believed in God. He trusted the blessings of God. He was counted as righteous. He's in the lineage of Jesus. How amazing. Or David. If you're familiar with scripture, you think of David as the king. David who defeated Goliath. Yes, it's true. But David was also adulterer. David was very prideful and arrogant, and he was a murder accomplice. Not somebody that you would probably think would be a part of Jesus' lineage, especially if you're trying to make up the story. And yet there's David, 
And what's incredible, when you read church history, which is found in the book of Acts, right after the Gospels, and you read them describe David, you know how he's described? As a man after God's own heart. He believed and trusted God, and it was counted as righteousness. I mean, he's a part of Jesus' lineage. Or Solomon. Solomon, wise man, wrote most of Proverbs. The son of King David. But he was a mess. Made terrible decisions, made terrible choices, but he is part of the lineage of Jesus. How incredible is that? If you think of the Savior of the world and you look back and you trace his family history, these guys and so many other guys are there, you're thinking, what in the world? How can they be a part of this? What's also interesting, what Matthew does, is revolutionary when you're looking at a genealogy. Back in that day, you wouldn't include women. You would always just include men. But Matthew... He went against the grain. He had to show the different women in the genealogy because it's fascinating. I mean, you have Tamar. Tamar, she acted like a prostitute to scam her father-in-law. What in the world? It's like a movie. And yet she's a part of Jesus' lineage. She was righteous because of her faithfulness in God. She is connected to Jesus. Bathsheba, if you know anything about David's story, when he cheats or when he commits adultery, it's with Bathsheba who's married yet Bathsheba produced Solomon, the line of Christ. We have Ruth. We, taught, we studied Ruth in the spring here at the chapel. She was a Moabite, a foreigner from the hated descendants of Lot. And yet she married into the Israelite clan. And then she was considered a part of Jesus' lineage or even Rahab. She ran a brothel in Jericho. But she delivered the city into the hands of the Israelites through her belief in God. I mean, seriously, if I told you, make up a story about Jesus' family members, you would not pick these people. Unless it was true. Because when truth is truth, you just let it speak for itself. But this isn't just Matthew's point. Matthew's point isn't to prove whether Jesus was real or not. He's just reporting the facts. What's so interesting about this genealogy, even when you get bored reading the names, you're like, oh my goodness, how many more names do we have to read? What matters so much is we think back to this concept of family. All of these people were included in Jesus' family. Not because they were good people. We just discovered there was a lot of bad going on. Not because they were faithful to God. Many of them turned their backs on him. Not because they believed correctly all the time. Many of them doubted. But they were included in Jesus' lineage to tell us the story of the Bible. Which is our story. The story of scripture from the beginning to the end. From Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation is this. It's the story of a God who is crazy in love with his people, and he would do whatever it takes to come after them, to show them love, to include them, so they and we get to be a part of his family forever. That's the story of Scripture. That's the story of what it means to be in God's family. But why is it that so many of us in this room, and so many of our family and friends, they don't believe that? Why is it that when people want to come to the chapel for the first time, they ask me, do I have to wear a suit? Now, you may say, well, you want to wear your Sunday best. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is this. So many people think they have to wear their best because they have to act their best. If I'm going to go to a church, I am going into the presence of God, God's 
God's house and I have to be in line and perfect and good and I had to read my Bible and I have to pray and I have to do all these things and I'm thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. When I look at Jesus' family, I see the opposite. I see people who are flawed. I see people who are broken. I see people of sketchy pasts. I see people who've been blessed by God and they turn their back on him. I see people who should not ever belong to God's family, and yet there they are in history showing that they belong. We need to embody that as well. God came for broken, flawed people like you and me. Matthew is showing us that no matter who you are or where you've come from or what you believe or how much Bible knowledge you know or how often you pray or what you come to church in or how even often you come to church, it doesn't matter. What matters is there is a faithful God who is offering the gift of salvation through grace in Jesus. And if you believe him and if you trust him, you get to be a part of his family and all the benefits that come with it. That's the kind of family that God has. And to prove that's Jesus' family, later in Matthew, Jesus is talking about his family and look what he says about family. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 through 50. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So here's Jesus with his uh, earthly family, right? And someone says, Jesus, hey, your mom, your brothers, they're standing outside, they want to speak to you. Jesus says, who's my mom? Who's my brothers? Now he's not acting ignorant. He knows who his mom and brothers are. But he makes a point here. Watch. Then he pointed to his disciples. These are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister, and mother. Is Jesus disrespecting his mom and his brothers? Absolutely not. He's not being ignorant to the fact that they love him and he is in love with them. Even as Jesus is dying on the cross, telling people to take care of his mom, Mary. But what Jesus does here, he expands family. And he tells us why he came in the first place. That if you trust him, And believe him. And you ultimately do his will because you are trusting and believing him. You are counted as a family member of his. That's why when you read the genealogy of Jesus, you see the Rahabs, the Tamars, the Solomons, the Davids. That's why when you read stories like, or watch movies like Scrooge and Grinch and Uncle Eddie, or Cousin Eddie, whatever his name is, Those kinds of people belong. And guess who else does? You and me. You and I belong. We get to be a part of God's family. So how I want to end our time is how do we do this? What does it mean to be a part of God's family and why does it matter? Well, the first way that you and I have to do this is that we have to Accept the fact that there's an invitation. That there's an invitation to God's table. That at his table, his celebration, there is a seat and it has your name card that you have to pick up like you were going to a wedding. 
It's there with your name on it. You have to open your heart, open your life to Jesus to receive it. We looked at a verse last week that I just had to bring back because it's just so powerful. To all who believed him and accepted him, all who trusted Jesus and who he is, all who looked at themselves and said, I don't belong. I am broken. I am flawed. I make mistakes. I doubt God. All of those people who say, but when I put my faith in God and trust him, they have the right to become part of God's family, children of God. Again, I don't know what kind of family background you come from. Maybe it's a really stable family. Maybe it's a family of dysfunction. Or if you're like me, a little bit of both. (laughs) Just depends on the day. Sometimes my family is perfect. Other times we would make Jerry Springer show look very embarrassing. (laughs) And I know there are so many people in this room who when I say the word family, just this ache in your heart rises up. I talked to a guy yesterday who was at our Saturday night service and I just, hey, where, where, are you going to, where are you going to Christmas Eve? He's like, nowhere. I said, why? And he just started to tell me just about his family. And my heart broke for him. And yet, it's interesting. He told me, he goes, but I'm gonna come here on December 23rd. I'm gonna serve all the services. And what he was saying is, I do have family. Because of my faith in Jesus, I have family brothers and sisters in Christ who's going to surround me and help me celebrate Christmas in a different way. And that's incredible, but again, I know that there's some of you who have broken families, and some of you, even to this day, no matter how old you are, carry some dad wounds, who didn't have a dad that said they loved you, you had to perform and try to do certain things and try to be a good person just to get his attention because he was just so busy or had his attention on something else, and you just feel like, man, I I never had a dad who really just loved me for me. When you say yes to Jesus and you become a child of God, you get a new dad who promises to love you unconditionally. As I was thinking about being a part of God's family, just some things that I have gone through in life, I started just to be grateful. And I just wrote a few words down that I need to know of just in my heart. And I need to read those to you today because I'm hoping that some of you here will feel that and say, I need that. And this is what comes from God's family. You're accepted for who you are. Not who everybody else wants you to be, or even who you want to be. You're accepted for who you are in God's family because you have a loving father who just adores you. You belong. Some of us, when we go to our family gatherings, we look around and we're like Elf. We don't feel like we belong. In God's family, you belong. You're included and wanted. There's some of us that we don't get an invitation to Christmas, or if we do, it's a pity invitation. But you are wanted, included. That seat at the table, even if you don't want it right now, it always has your name on it. And you're chosen. Some of us have never been chosen in this life. We've been overlooked so many times, either in our family, in friendships, in job opportunities. It always feels like other people are chosen, but not you and me. Well, you are chosen. You get to be a part. You have a father who unconditionally loves you, a brother in Jesus who just wants to be your best friend and always there for you. 
And brothers and sisters in this room and around the world who call themselves Jesus followers, children of God, that you get to be a part of that family as well. So if you want to be that family member, you have to receive and accept that invitation to be a part. The second part of being part of God's family, I believe, is just as important. Remember when Jesus says, hey, if you want to follow me, just do two things. Love me and love people. The second thing we need to do is in that same vein is to open your hearts to others. Andy Stanley tweeted out something the other day that I did not like because it was very, very right and I was very, very convicted. So I thought I would convict you this morning with it as well. This quote is so just mind-blowingly good. I'm going to read it twice. The more aware I am of what God has yet to do in me, the less aware I am and the less consumed I am by what he's yet to do in the people around me. I wish I said that. I would sound really smart if I did. (laughs) The more aware I am of what God is yet to do in me, just pause it for a moment. How many of us are so aware of our brokenness in this room? How many of us are aware of our flaws and our weaknesses? How many of us just desire to be a better spouse or a better friend or a better coworker, a better parent or grandparent? How many of us don't like the words that come out of our mouth? How many of us don't like the actions that we perform when we're on our phone by ourselves? How many of us recognize how truly imperfect we are? Then why do we expect perfection and wholeness in other people? I think if we paid attention more to what God's doing in my life, I would be Less, I would, the less aware and the less consumed I would be by what he's yet to do in other people around me. We oftentimes judge people not by God's standard, which there is no standard because it's grace. We judge people by our standard. I heard it said one time, we judge others by their intentions. I'm sorry, I messed this up. We want others to judge us by our intentions when we oftentimes judge others by their actions. What we're saying is this. When we look at people, we get consumed and angry with who they are, we're really upset because they're not like us. This Christmas season, if you want your family gatherings to be successful, and you're consumed with fixing your mom or your brother or your friend that's coming over, your Christmas season will be miserable and you've missed the purpose of Christmas. The purpose of Christmas is God came down for you and me to save us and make us like Jesus. And that process is very, 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 very long. Why not give that same grace to others who are desperate for it? This Christmas season, when you're around the table, instead of getting angry and frustrated and annoyed, which we all do, what if we were just grateful for being a part of God's family by his grace and treated others as such? What if this Christmas season, when we're with others 
and we're not looking forward to it. We've been dreading it all year. We said to God, God, I'm going to be your presence, and then I'm going to trust you to fix them and change them whenever you're ready. Until then, let me be Jesus to them. Imagine if that was our family gathering this year. It'd be a lot different, wouldn't it? What's incredible being part of God's family is this. Someday, when Jesus returns, we're going to gather around a huge table, a banquet table. All of us are going to be there. And you're going to look around the table like, I didn't know you were going to be here. Trust me, some people are going to say to you, didn't know you were going to be here either, but by the grace of God. You're going to look around, different color skin, different political views, different socioeconomic status different nations, and Jesus is going to be our host, and what a glorious day that's going to be as being part of God's family, but until then, Jesus said, I, I want you to gather around another table to remember that you're part of my family, so if you would, get your uh, communion cups out, please. If you don't have a communion cup, maybe you forgot to grab it or didn't, uh, we have some greeters here, raise your hands, and they would be more than happy to give you, raise it high. A couple people back there, right here in the middle. I already hear some of the crinkling, so go ahead and tear the top part off here. And would you do me a favor, as you're thinking about how grateful it is that you are taking this bread as a representation of Jesus' broken body, would you just take a moment silently to say thank you for including you in his family? Would you just do that? Would you just repeat after me? Just say, thank you, Jesus. Go ahead. Thank you, Jesus. Let's do this in his name. And you could take the bottom off, or the bottom tab off. Keep it away from your shirt so you don't spill it on your Sunday best here. This is Jesus' blood. It's a symbol of his blood. It's not really his blood, but it's a representation of the relationship that we have with God himself, Jesus brokered the relationship, the fractured relationship. He made it whole because of what he did for us on the cross, specifically his spilled blood. Would you just take a moment to say thank you for including you and his family? Would you repeat after me? Would you just say thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus. So Lord, we enter time open-handed, both receiving the grace of God that comes through Jesus. We say thank you for including us in his family. We say sorry for all the ways that our behaviors and our attitudes towards others have shown them a bad picture of who you are and ask you for the courage and strength and grace and trust to extend that to those coming around our table this year, who don't know you and yet need you desperately. For your glory and for our good, Jesus, in your name, amen. Have a great Sunday.